every week we have somebody from our team come to read the word. The word belongs to all of us. Uh, so this is Pat. Everybody say, thanks, Pat. Jeremiah 29, 1 through 14. These are the words of the letter that the prophet Jeremiah sent from Jerusalem to the remaining elders among the exiles and to the priests, the prophets, and all the people whom Nebuchadnezzar had taken into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. This was after King Jeconiah and the queen mother, the court officials, the leaders of Judah and Jerusalem, the artisans and the smiths, had departed from Jerusalem. The letter was sent by the hand of Elisa, son of Shaphan, and Gemariah, son of Hilkiah, whom King Zedekiah of Judah sent to Babylon, to King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon, and it said, Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon, build houses and live in them, Plant gardens and eat what they produce. Take wives and have sons and daughters. Take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage, that they may bear sons and daughters. Multiply there and do not decrease. But seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf. For in its welfare, you will find your welfare. For thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, do not let the prophets and the diviners who are among you deceive you, and do not listen to the dreams that they dream. For it is a lie, and they are prophesying to you in my name. For I did not send them, says the Lord. For thus says the Lord, only when Babylon's 70 years are completed will I visit you, and I will fulfill to you my promise and bring you back to this place. For surely I know the plans I have for you, says the Lord, plans for your welfare, and not for harm, to give you a future with hope. Then when you call upon me and come and pray to me, I will hear you. When you search for me, you will find me, if you seek me with all your heart. I will let you find me, says the Lord, and I will restore your fortunes and gather you from all the nations and all the places where I have driven you, says the Lord, and I will bring you back to the place from which I sent you into exile. Amen. Thank you. Thank you, Pat. Everybody give Pat a round of applause. I knew she'd crush it. Um, yeah, she just crushed it. And I, let me tell you, I gave her a hard passage. Some of those names, it's like, if you read them, it means I don't have to. Um, again, thank you all for being here. I, I am I've dreamed uh, about this day for a long time, prayed about this day for a long time, and it's not just a blessing uh, to me to be able to spend today with you. It's a blessing to our team. Uh, so we are excited. We've, we've prayed and planned over this for over a year, and so it's incredibly exciting and deeply humbling uh, to see so many people here and to have to bring in chairs. It's a testament to what God is doing to, to foster and to build a community. You know, this is a little bit like a wedding day. Um, not everything goes according to plan. I love doing weddings, which is not something I ever thought I'd say as a pastor. It's one of my favorite things to do um, because things go wrong. And every time something goes wrong, it's a great memory. Um, and at the end of the day, people are still married. At my wedding, um, my little cousin was the ring bearer, walked up the aisle, got us the ring. It was awesome. Walked in the second row and threw up in my uncle's lap. Didn't know that. 
I was still married at the end of that wedding. Uh, Seth, my brother on guitar, was so nervous to take communion at his wedding that he took the wine and, and uh, got it all over his white shirt. Where's Will? Will Chapel's here today. Uh, I officiated Will's wedding and uh, forgot all the communion elements, so we celebrated with sponge cake. Um, I'll never forget that. These become memories. And so today is the same way. Not everything's going uh, gonna go perfectly. This isn't about perfection. Thank you for being here on the day in the life of our church where we know the least of what we're doing. Um, but uh, we thought about this day for a long time and about what, what to cover. What, how would we kick off uh, a church? What would we speak about? And we, we kind of knew pretty early, and I say we because it's, it's in discussion with our core team and Jordan, uh, our associate pastor. And our, our core passage, it's, it's where we get our name from, but more than that, it's where we get our calling from. It's this moment in Jeremiah 29. And so hopefully today we'll get to shed some light for, for you on who we are, uh, but more importantly and most importantly, the point of the passage sheds light on who we're all called to be and who we all can be in God and with God. It talks about where God meets us and what he's designed us to do. And so this morning we're going to look at Jeremiah 29. It's a word about hope and promise, imagination, and so much more. It's about what life can look like when we realize that God is really with us. I should note very quickly, this is one of two plugs. I didn't say shameless plugs. There's a little shame in them. There's two plugs. One is this is a sequel to last week's message at our previous service, which you can listen to now on Spotify or on our website. That's the last of the first plug the second one won't come for a while, I promise. Okay, now, Jeremiah can be a challenging book. Uh, I was telling Jordan, why did I pick the first message to summarize, uh, like, the second biggest book in the Bible? It's not only massive in size, it's notoriously, like, messy in narrative structure and history, but the fact that it exists in the first place is a testament to God's faithfulness. So let me give you some background for the book of, of Jeremiah. Now, Judah is, is where Jerusalem is. It's, it's the country that holds, the kingdom that holds, um, all that the Israelites know themselves to be, the, 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 their religion, their place where they worship, their pilgrimage to this place. It's all in Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Judah at this time is not in charge. It's not the big dog in town. The Assyrians are, and they're not kind to them. And so for a long time, Judah's been getting by by kind of compromising themselves in an, in an effort to kind of gain some kind of, of peace, um, really just to kind of avoid um, harm from the Assyrians. Slowly, the power of the Assyrians, this uh, power from the north, starts to crumble. Around the same time, Jeremiah hears the word of the Lord to step into calling, and there's a new king. His name is Josiah. Josiah discovers or rediscovers the book of the law and institutes all these reforms and things start to change. It looks amazing. People start to worship again with passion. They return to God. Uh, their culture gets restored and things are going well. The Assyrians are dying until the Egyptians come to the Assyrians' aid and they kill King Josiah. And everything that was on the upswing starts to crumble again. The Egyptians are this menace. They institute a puppet leader. And I know I'm flying through this. It's like 18 seasons of Game of Thrones. I did not recommend that show. I just made the reference. They, I have to say that. Sorry, John Piper. So they, the, the Egyptians put up a puppet leader. Then here come the Babylonians. Now, this whole time, Jeremiah's been prophesying these words, even during the good times of like, hey, things are coming. Um, we have to atone. We've been a wayward people. Well, the Babylonians come. They destroy the Egyptians, and they keep going right on through to Judah. They sack Judah. They loot the temple, and they kidnap some of their best people to go into exile, their leaders, their teachers, 
They're business owners, the best of the best. They take them into exile. And so now there's two groups of God's people. There's those who've been taken away into exile and those who are stuck back home in proximity to home, but really in exile from who they're supposed to be or who they think they're supposed to be, and a debate emerges what to do. Do they join the Egyptians, their former enemies, to fight against the Babylonians, or do they endure this period of exile and survive it, trusting God's guidance? Jeremiah says we should do the latter. God's faithful. This is for a season. God has instituted it. We should continue. They decide not to. They partner with the Egyptians. The Babylonians get even more upset. Uh, They destroy the Egyptians. They now enter Jerusalem, and they reduce most of it to ruins. So things are worse than they've ever been for God's people. And during this time, Jeremiah continues to voice God's displeasure with his people's disloyalty. And for his obedience to speak God's word, he suffers. People maybe justifiably get upset. I mean, we think of prophecy sometimes as like, man, you're going to get a new jet this week. And Jeremiah's like, you're going to go into exile for 70 years. <laughs> Things are going to be bad. People are like, get out of here, you know? Um, so he suffers much, but he never detaches himself from the people. And when they're not hurting him, he suffers with them, among them. Uh, he's called to speak this word as part of him. And it's in this period of turmoil and separation where all hope seems lost that Jeremiah sends this letter to a people in exile. Now consider for a moment what it must have felt like to read this word, not from Jeremiah, but from God himself. This is the word of the Lord. Even the mere receiving of it in a foreign land where you had no control, where it was not only expensive, but difficult to get letters into there from the outside, the fact that this word exists would have itself been miraculous to know that God is still speaking and hope is not lost. Now, the reason this is important, the reason I go through all this history is because though we are not exiled in the same way they are, there are certain similarities we share with their situation that are worth talking about to set up today. Now, they were exiled for a set period of time, for 70 years. We'll talk about why that is in a moment, but not necessarily for the same reasons we might experience what it means to be exiled. But you and I, make no mistake, are exiles today in this sense. Philippians 3.20 tells us this, our citizenship is in heaven. And from it, we await the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. That isn't a call to live detached from the earth. It's to recognize where home is. And the fullness of home is not exactly where we stand. And yet we're called to live. We're called not just to survive, but to thrive. Now, we have similar fears and choices today. I don't know if you've looked around, but the state of the church in America is not particularly great. Uh, We don't have uh, evangelicals the same kind of influence or power that we might have felt 40 years ago. There's that loss of influence and power, and on top of that, the church, numerically, is shrinking. It's a scary time to be a Christian if you're a doomsdayer. You're thinking, um, what do we do? And, and here comes choices. Do we ally ourselves with power in order to survive? Do we endure this, trusting that the church can never be swept away because it's part of the resurrected body of Christ? And so we find ourselves in a similar space of deciding where to go and who to follow. And so God's word to the exiles in Jeremiah 29 has certain echoes for us to receive and to hear. He offers the exiles then clarity, but he also offers some more questions. For one, it's it's kind of a strange message. Make yourself at home. How many of y'all have ever heard that? Make yourself at home. Uh, Years ago, I was in Indie Coffee. Um, They're not competing against Gabe. Don't worry about it. Indie Coffee, great coffee shop here in town. And there was a guy there with a full Mac computer, like desktop. He had his headphones, took over a whole table. 
And I was like, man. And I, I took a video of it. I'm not proud of it. And I put make yourself at home. And I tagged Indy and they reposted it. Well, he showed up to a church function like two weeks later. It was like, hey, I was in your story. It's like, I am so sorry. Um, but we know the strangeness in concept to make yourself at home in a place that really isn't your home. And yet this is what God invites the exiles to do. It's good things, things they yearn for, families, um, gardens, fruit, abundance. It's more than survival. It's good things, and yet it's not in a good place. So why bother at all? Everything they had known and cherished as good was tied to a certain kind of place and a certain kind of power. And with that gone, they're forced to reconsider what good looks like. But what God is giving them is a gift. He's carving out a new path for them and really for all of us who wait on him. And that path is one of constraint and encouragement. Encouragement in the sense of don't lose hope. I know the plans I have for you. And constraint in the sense of don't lose home. Continue to seek me where you're at. It's a place related to a person more than it is related to a land. So the question comes, why a garden? What a strange idea, planting a garden in someone else's backyard. It's important for us uh, to recognize that there are both scriptural and missional implications to the idea of a garden. This is the topic, the sermon title for today is how to build a garden. And there are four implications here in Jeremiah 29 for those of us in exile attempting to follow the will of God for the good of those around us. So as we look at gardens, we see uh, that God's plan from the outset involves the things he's talking about. It involves a garden and a family. They're both present at the very beginning. We know this. Uh, if you've ever read the Bible, the Garden of Eden was created for a family. Um, it's also present at the end. Heaven is pictured and described as a garden, and the children of God, the family of God, enjoy him forever. And in the in-between, previous to Jeremiah, we see God reestablish family in his grace toward his people, in the form of new covenants. We see the temple designed to echo Eden. Gardens and families are all throughout scripture. And so God is inviting his exiled people to step into what he has always wanted for them, right where they're at. So his plans have not been altered. The location has, the context has, but gardens and family remain part of what he's called us to enjoy. Gardens and families are also missional. In a broken world, life and growth and belonging are lights in dark places. They point to the power of God, and especially so when they appear among powerless people. These kind of everyday things become miraculous displays of faith, resiliency, and hope. Have you ever seen joy on someone in a destitute place? It rocks you. It doesn't make sense, and yet they have a kind of joy that transcends their context, and speaks to their context. This is what God is talking about. The calling, the joy of garden and family is available right where they're at, even if right where they're at doesn't feel like home. And this is what it means to follow God. It is to engage in the hopeful work of settling down and building something, not just for ourselves, but for the world around us. As we discussed last week, it's not a second plug, it's a sequel to the, anyway. This is what seed planting is. It's an exercise in hope. A seed is perfect potential. It's not yet a tree, but it contains within it the perfection of one. And what a seed requires of us is time, attention, and care. And so the first implication, if you want to build a garden, building a garden takes presence. God is telling the exiles, in a sense, this land is your land because it's his land. The world belongs to him, which means the exiles are never truly homeless as long as God is with them. 
And God makes it very clear in this passage that the exile is his doing. And that should be uncomfortable for us to read. It's not something he chooses lightly. Later in Jeremiah 42, he'll say that it grieves him to do this, to bring judgment to Judah, but there's purpose in his plans, the exile and the good plans to come. There's an opportunity to establish his power through the exiles right where they're at. We're seeing themes and concepts in this chapter that will echo into the New Testament. The humble and the outcast become glorified and restored. People in a foreign land with no formal power shine a light that can't be snuffed or ignored. Seeds grow into forests. Twelve become a global historical body of believers. When we are established and rooted in a place, the questions we ask change. We no longer ask, when can we leave here? We begin to ask, what is possible here? Living well, flourishing, this requires visionary activity. We have to see the tree in the seed. See, calling in the Bible is always attached to place. God's word is never detached from a location because he is with us. He is never detached from us. In the Old Testament, the cloud and the pillar of fire traveled with God's people. The tabernacle and the Ark of the Covenant did too. And this is because presence begets presence. If God is in this place, we can be here too, faithfully and joyfully. And so gardens take presence. Building one will take your time, your tension, and your care all of which are scarcities in the modern world. They also take relationship. Gardening is not a work for soloists. Of course, becoming a family is not a work for soloists. This is the project of an ensemble. Testimonies are meant to be amplified. They're evident in a people. You can't do mission alone. God has given it to a family and not individuals. His vision has always been for the world. The Garden of Eden didn't cover the earth, but it was made to over time. Life is supposed to spread. This was God's plan in the beginning. It's his plan in the new covenant. Jesus came because he so loved the world. And if this is the case, this has to be our vision too. And more than that, it has to start here in a community of faith. This is why that word to the exiles is given to them in exile. And then it's to be carried out into the world around them. You know, a few months ago, we got to meet with uh, our, our councilman district's office, which they're in some... You know, I don't know if you've ever read the news. Council's in a little bit of hot water. Ignore that for now. Um, we got to meet with them, and I got connected with uh, Council and Manny's office just to see, like, hey, how can we serve? How can we help? What's available? And uh, we sat down. I was, like, really excited about the meeting. I was telling Jordan, this is so cool. Man, who knows what God's going to do with this, you know? And we sit down, and, and uh, the woman who works there, very sweet, was like, are you guys, y'all are like the community garden, right? I was like, uh, kind of, metaphorically. <laughs> we're, uh, Yes and no. Um, but that's the idea, right? I mean, I wanted to say yes. I knew what she meant. But uh, this idea of, of being about the world can be difficult for us. And the irony is that we're the ones who are supposed to get it the most. I mean, if you're in ministry or you've been going to church, you remember what COVID did to the unity of churches. Um, I, I've heard so many stories over the last year from planters who felt this calling on their lives, who told their lead pastors and experienced a split or a rejection or a dismissal. The church is where unity is supposed to happen, where family is supposed to happen, where a garden is supposed to begin, and yet it's often where it's lost or it falls apart. This is exactly why we come together every week to worship. We're shaped after God's heart for mission. We're made the light of the world for the world. Now, this sounds like Church 101, obviously, but the concept for those in exile must have sounded like insanity. 
Um, God is asking us to pray for these people. They killed so many people we know. They destroyed our home. They kidnapped us and took us to this place where we don't own anything, and I'm supposed to pray for them. But this is another thing we see throughout Scripture is that God's instructions to live among and advocate for the world are set, and they're only scandalous to those who have forgotten where they came from. In Romans 5, Paul says, while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son. I remember reading a a Eugene Peterson sermon once talking about Psalm 23, and he says, this table that the Lord prepares for us in the midst of his enemies, why don't we ever ask if coming to the table means leaving, being associated with the enemies? It's being welcomed as an enemy to become a friend. In building his garden, God connects with people who don't belong there. So to walk out and to see the life of flourishing he has for us, we have to do the same. Gardens take partnership. The one God makes for us with him and the one we get to enjoy here is a foretaste of what's to come. Because we know God is compassionate, he's welcoming, he's gracious, he's merciful, he's patient. He says so and he demonstrates it time and time again. We know that Jesus prayed for his enemies on the cross. He prayed for us before we were born or saved. And God's command in the end is really just to imitate him, to act like family. Matthew 5, Jesus says this, You have heard that it was said you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be children of your Father in heaven. For he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the righteous and on the unrighteous. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers and sisters, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same. Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. In this life that we yearn for, if it's not demonstrated here within the community of faith, we don't stand a chance to see it or foster it outside of this place. Paul repeats uh, something similar in Romans 12. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be arrogant, but associate with the lowly. Do not be, claim to be wiser than you are. Do not repay evil for evil, but take thought for what is noble in the sight of all. If it is possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. He goes on to say, give vengeance to God. It's, it's his duty. So this command from God in Jeremiah, it's an invitation to transformation. See, prayer, just like all of worship, is dynamic. It changes over time. And you know what this is like if you're in a season that feels heavy. You don't want to come in and sing the songs that are at like 150 BPM. Like, you don't feel like that. Or if you're in this place of joy, maybe the somber songs feel like they're pulling you down. Um, Thankfully, worship is more dynamic than that. Worship reminds us that God is with us in every season. And it doesn't just speak to those seasons. In those seasons, worship and prayer change us. This is my second plug. Starting next week, we're going to do a full series on prayer. So if you want to learn more about that, you can come back. That's it. Second plug. I'm done. God is speaking through Jeremiah to get the exiles to ask a question. What would it look like to pray like this? Who would become the subject of your prayers? Would that change your attitude to them? Would it change your future with them? Now, this prayer is dangerous. It changes conditions, which is what they want, but it also changes categories. One of my favorite stories of what prayer does to us is uh, from our sending church. Kevin Flowers, an incredible man of God, uh, a deep prayer. Um, His daughter had this boyfriend, really, really kind guy, really, really, really smart. His name's Kiernan. He's a really good friend of mine. 
at the time, Kiernan was at best an agnostic, but pretty committed to being an atheist. And so Kevin will tell you, and he's told Kiernan, that his prayers at the beginning were like, uh, God, Kiernan's a tennis instructor, would you just send a beautiful young girl to sweep Kiernan off his feet? Like, I just, in my mind, Lord, I have someone for my daughter who's completely just all out saved. So he prayed that for a while, but Kiernan kept coming over to the house, and Kiernan is like, an incredibly sweet guy. I mean, he just, he's kind to the family. He cares for them. To be around Kiernan is to feel like a better person. And so Kevin was like, well, then my prayer started to change. Like, God, would you move on his heart? Would you help him to hear that you love him, that you have life for him, that you have a different life for him? And God answered those prayers. I got the call from, I got a text from Kiernan at the beginning of the year, bro, I gave my life to Christ last night. It's an incredible story. Uh, we can clap for that. Amen. Our prayers change, and in the process, they change us. And so you get a great gauge of health. Who does and doesn't get your prayers? God's grace for us is meant to be grace from us. The gardens that we're meant to plant for the life of the world will take partnership in the community of faith and outside of it. Next, God is doing something unique here, not typically found in Scripture. He's telling his people not to pray for deliverance. He's told them, look, this is going to last 70 years. He's not telling them to avoid that prayer because deliverance isn't coming. It is. It's part of his plan. All of this is part of his plan. But he's speaking to something else. And so planting a garden takes presence. It takes partnership. He's speaking now to the yearning that God's people have. They want change. They want deliverance. But God is telling the exiles something important, and he's telling this to us today too, something about what redemption and restoration and resurrection actually looks like. Just like prayer widens the scope of who deserves God's goodness, it begins to widen the scope of what we see goodness as, what goodness looks like. And here's the thing about how God writes the stories of redemption and resurrection. Nothing is wasted in the story that he writes. I often think about Jesus and how he proved who he was. In his resurrected body, he bore scars. He pointed to his nail-scarred hands. He pointed to the wound in his side. How is this, why is this that Jesus on the other side of resurrection still had evidence of who he was before? This is because God is not in the business of erasure, He erases your sins in mercy and forgiveness, but he doesn't restore you to what was. He creates new life. And I think often when we hear new life, we want to settle for the old life back again. We want to see something restored to what it used to be. And yet what God is in the business of doing is creating something radically different out of shattered pieces. If you've ever had an injury before, I I tore my ACL six years ago, and I'm still getting mileage out of talking about it. Um, I, uh, when, when, when I go to the gym, I I swear, this is just tail spinning. When I go to the gym, anyway, I, I still have a numbness in my knee. It's, you know, I had surgery, I repaired it, and yet, Because of the surgery I had, and I'm no athlete, so this is very helpful, my reconstructed knee is stronger than it was before. I can't feel the same way. I can't, um, you know, uh, it, 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 like, if it hurts, it means it really hurts. I can't scratch it, all that weird stuff. But it's stronger than it used to be. So it's not the same. I didn't get restored to what I was before. I have something different, but something new and something better. We think about this when we encounter depression. I want to go back to what I was before. 
but God is walking you and carrying you to a new place where who you were and what you experienced becomes a part of your testimony on the other side. For those of you who've experienced divorce or families splitting, surely there's a part of you that yearns to go back to what was, but God is here to bring out something new that only he can. Now, there's sympathy for wanting to bring the past back. Nobody will go to their grave without any regrets. But God has more to write, and his imagination is not limited in place or time like ours. Things will be different, but they don't have to be bad or worse. Look at the covenants that God establishes in the Bible. The old ones are not negated, but they become foundations for the new ones. And each new covenant represents a greater revelation of God's love and mercy. Without the pains and the failures of God's people that new covenants come to address, they would not make sense, and worse, they would not exist. So the heart becomes the new tablets where the word of God is inscribed. Jesus becomes the new temple that was destroyed. Jesus becomes the new homeland in John 4. And Jeremiah continues in, in the, uh, chapter 31. He says, this is the word of the Lord. The days are surely coming when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. It will not be like the covenant I made with their ancestors when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. A covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, says the Lord. But this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. I will put my law within them and I will write it on their hearts and I will be their God and they shall be my people no longer shall they teach one another or say to each other, know the Lord, for they shall all know me from the least of them to the greatest, says the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquity and remember their sin no more. The new covenant established here, the new promise he makes is to build on the story of failure and disloyalty and heartache and sorrow, not because God enjoys punishment, but because he loves mercy. He longs to show us that love, and his love is never generic. It's always grounded. This love of God is steadfast, and it's patient, and that's the tricky part of gardening. It requires patience. That's why I can't even keep succulents alive. We want what we want, and we want it immediately, but gardens take time, and they take perspective. We have to let go of our expectations to receive something greater we have to acknowledge our lack of control and our call to stewardship, and that can bother us if we let it. But God has plans, says Jeremiah in 29.11, and those plans involve carrying us to what's next. So you want to plant a garden, you want to thrive, you want to bear fruit. Gardens take perseverance. They take trust in the process. They take presence of God that keeps us going. I was telling my friend one of my biggest struggles is finishing God's sentences, it's a problem I have, like, just in conversation. I don't know if it's ADHD. It might be. But I feel like I know I'm, like, tracking with somebody, and then I try to finish their sentences, and they're like, no, that's not where I was going at all. Um, I do this with God. I'm like, oh, I know where he's going. This is, this is what's going to happen. And then what happens is wildly different. And even if I don't know it in the moment, it's always for his glory and my good. Um, this is what God aims to do with those in exile. He says, I have new life for you. Don't try to finish my sentence. Here's where the page ends, but from here to there, there's life, there's love, there's experience. There's more for us, but we have to let go. See, goodness is about context. And if the context is attached to place or things, it's brittle because change comes. And if our confidence, if the goodness that we have and cling to is attached to things that change, hope fades and dies. 
But where goodness is attached to a faithful God, we get to ask big questions when things don't line up. We get to call on big promises to be fulfilled. We get to trust the what where the when makes no sense. And these are lessons for a lifetime. They take commitment beyond circumstance. This is why that 70 years in exile is so important. Because what that represented was a lifetime. It meant that this thing that I promise you, many of you who receive this word might not live to see it like you think you will. But your kids will. And their kids will. Now that doesn't mean that the exiles didn't get to experience goodness. And it doesn't mean that we won't either. It just means that we have to look for it in the unexpected. This is why God says, seek me and you will find me. Jesus says the same thing in Matthew 7. Seek and you will find. This is the heart of God. It's an eternal promise. The kingdom is at hand. It's breaking in and through. This is why I love the season of Epiphany, which I never expected as a Baptist to say. But Epiphany is that little season right after Christmas, right before we get into Lent. And the idea is that the light has come. What is it revealing? How do you know that light is present? You look at what it shines on. And so the kingdom is breaking in. Dawn has come. And how do we know it? We look to see where the light is starting to shine. We have to catch the good to keep going. And so what's the fourth thing that gardens take? They take praise. Praise anchors us in the present. It draws hope here. It reminds us that the God who was is. Look at what Scripture says. When Scripture talks about the goodness of God, it talks about it in three dimensions, past, present, and future. Psalm 63, David says, I have looked upon you in the sanctuary, beholding your power and glory. I remember how close you felt in worship, and because your steadfast love is better than life, I will praise you. We will see the goodness of the Lord. It's the confidence in the future. Psalm 27, I believe that I shall see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. Wait for the Lord. Be strong and let your heart take courage. And we get to taste who God is and what's coming here in this moment. Psalm 34, taste and see that the Lord is good. Happy are those who take refuge in him. Gardens take praise. You want to see a garden grow, you have to notice and celebrate the little things. You have to pay attention. You have to see that life starts small, but that it is real, it is around you, and it is growing. You know, Planting a garden is, is a preview. It's a foretaste. It's, a, it's what we are called to do. It's what we'll get to do in eternity. We'll get to grow and flourish together. And the church is built on these activities to make them previews and signs for a world that needs to see them. The church is where the future becomes tangible, where things become real to us as spirit-filled symbols, present reminders of God's grace that offer more than remembrance. They offer participation, enjoyment, receiving. Church is like a home away from home. If you're in exile, church is a place where you can go and you can remember that God is with you. Every Sunday is a chance for us to get to do that together. We engage in the garden work because it grounds us. It's a terrible pun. It's intended. But it connects us to each other and those around us. It keeps us going when it seems like we can't take another step, and it opens our eyes and our hearts to see and share the light of Jesus. And so my prayer for us as we kick this church off is that those four things would inspire us, not just to make a cute name or some cool shirts or, well, shirts, depending on, on your taste. But more than that, I want us to engage in the work of testimony, and not even just our church, but if you're here today and you know the life of Jesus, you have an invitation in Jeremiah 29 to be present. You have an invitation to partner 
for the good around you in the glory of God, you have an invitation to keep going because you're not alone. And you have an invitation to praise and to see the evidence that God is with you and that God is good. And so my prayer as we close is twofold. I hope that you have a place, a real place with real people where you can join in remembering God's faithfulness and you can taste and see it around you. And I also pray that if you don't know that place, you will. That there is a place, a home away from home, and it's people, people united by the Spirit of God. This is why we come together, to avoid drift, to keep our eyes open, to keep us from forgetting who God is, as the psalm we remembered, uh, as the psalm we read together at the beginning said, forget not his benefits. We come to remember and to rejoice Because if we don't, we drift and we lose hope. It's why we sing together, why we pray together. It's why we open the word and listen as people. We're gathered for this purpose, and we do all this so we can stand together and see together. And so as we close, I'm going to invite you to stand uh, with us. In our liturgies every week, we believe this. Liturgies just means service if you didn't come from a high church Presbyterian background. Um. In our services, we believe that the point of sharing the sermon is to discuss the word, but more importantly, to let the spirit introduce attention into our hearts. And our responsibility as a community, as a church, is not to resolve that tension. It's to give you a space to sit in that moment, to acknowledge that tension, and to bring it to the Holy Spirit. This is why we're here today, because God still speaks. The same way that those exiles in Jeremiah must have felt to get the word of the Lord in a hopeless place, the word of the Lord is always available to us. 